heads and let's pray. Father, thank you once again that we can gather together to remember the Lord Jesus, to remember, Lord, what took place 2,000 years ago when it was heralded that there's a king born in a manger, born in the, in the city of Bethlehem. Lord, how that must have rung through the ears in the hearts and minds of angels and men and people that knew better, Lord. For many, Lord, it meant nothing to them. They might see a star, but they wouldn't see the star in the cradle. But thank you, Lord, that you opened our eyes to see Christ, not as one only who was on the cradle, but the one that was on the cross, who bore our sins in his own body in the tree. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the purification that you've made to put away our sins as far as the east is from the west. That purification gives us assurance, Lord, that our sins and iniquities will be remembered no more because they're buried in the deepest sea as far as the east is from the west. They're cast behind your back. They're washed in the blood of the Lamb. We're thankful, Father, today that we can come together as cleansed lepers, as it were, and want to praise your holy name. Father, we hunger and thirst for the word. We thank you for gifting men and women, Lord, too, to be able to handle the word, to teach the word, to enjoy the word. And we pray for our brother Alex as he's about to bring the word. We ask, Lord, that there be a special unction upon him, Lord, for the good of your name and your glory and for us, your people, that we would be edified, Father, and that you would be more and more exalted in our hearts and that we would go away thankful that we've heard what we've heard and seen, as it were, what we have by the eye of faith as we think more of the, about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in all eternity, Lord, we'll never exhaust the greatness, the might, and the graces that were demonstrated for us for what he went through here in this world, and especially what he endured on the cross. So, Father, we pray that we would get another glimpse of glory, that we'd get another taste of the grapes of Eshkol as our brother unfolds the word before us. We pray that you would give attentive ears, that, Lord, we would hear what you would have us to hear so that we can go away encouraged and blessed, thankful and even more worshipful in our hearts as we ask these things, O God, giving you praise and thanks in the worthy name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Come on, brother, bring us the word. Good morning. morning. You had me through the mic. Perfect. Well, when I was in high school, right after I'd become a Christian, a uh, wonderful Christian woman in the church paid, uh, I don't even know how much money, but she paid a sum of money for me to go through the training to be able to host backyard Bible clubs through the Child Evangelism Fellowship. And so I went through several days of training. I got this backpack that I carried over my shoulder that had uh, cards to be able to tell gospel stories, the stories of missionaries, and then to have games and activities and things all while sharing the gospel in parks and in various communities. I hosted two of these camps, one in Manchester, which is where I went to high school, one in Greeley, Iowa, where I grew up. And it, it was interesting. Some of the kids were church, some of the kids were not. One of the kids in particular, his name was Clayton, and he was old enough to read, but still quite young. And we, he and I were talking about the Bible, and he said, you know, every time I pick up the Bible, all I find is so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. And he said, it's so boring and dreary. He's like, I just, I just can't read this. And I laughed and commiserated because that was my original experience with the Bible too. And so what are we going to do today? But we're going to meditate on the so-and-sos begetting so-and-sos in the Gospel of Matthew. It's, well, that is yet to be determined. <laughs> so if you would please pray with me as we ask the Lord for help and open to Matthew chapter 1. Christ, you are worthy of all of our praise. And we gather today in honor of the work that you have done in our hearts, that you have brought us from death unto life, that you have brought us into your family so that we can be real sons and daughters. Lord, that we have a hope that is not just wrath and eternal hell, but that we have a hope that is the glory of your kingdom, Lord, in a new heavens and a new earth. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would set our eyes upon that. We pray that you would set our gaze 
Lord, on the wondrous mystery of the Incarnation as we consider the fact that You worked out Your plan over thousands of years to result in the culmination of giving Your Son as a payment for our sins, Lord, and that we are still partaking of that gift today. We pray, Lord, that this would be interesting. Lord, that it would be interesting to our eyes, that it would be interesting to our hearts as we consider these things. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The main point of our passage this morning, indeed, I would say the main point of the entire Gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and culmination of all the promises of God. That's right. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and culmination of all the promises of God. And this is where Matthew begins. Indeed, he starts the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of genealogy could also be translated the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ. Anybody have any idea where else you find the book of the generations? Genesis. Where? How about Genesis 5.1? So people will highlight Luke's Gospel and they say, well, Luke begins with, with Adam, whereas Matthew begins with Abraham. Not so. In the very beginning, Matthew is signaling a connection with the book of Genesis, with the, indeed with Adam, but Matthew is specifically focusing on one particular part of the lineage of Christ, which is Abraham to David to Christ. Now, we, we ask ourselves, why would he do this? So let's, let's break it down a little bit. What happens prior to Genesis chapter 5 verse 1? That is the very beginning of the book, the book of Genesis as well as the book of the Bible, and it is indeed the very beginning of the world, the cosmos, everything that is. Creation is portrayed as good and as gloriously united to its creator. This all then shifts as we hit chapter 3. It shifts to the way things are today, which is irreparably broken. It is how we got here in the midst of a sinful and fallen world. Genesis locates this shift from perfection to brokenness, not in external circumstances, but in the very heart of man. Man rejected the true worship of God. Man rejected the word and good commandments of God. Man did his own thing, and therefore man was cast out of paradise, and man was cursed. As punishment for man's sin, God cursed Adam and Eve. He cursed them with death, that is both physical death and spiritual death. But God also cursed the ground, so that gathering food, so that work is toil. God cursed childbearing with pain. All of creation was subjected to futility and pain, even our relationships with other people. Sin touches our bodies. Sin touches our minds. It touches our marriages, our friendships, our job, every facet of life. We still find good things there as a residue of the fact that they were created by a good God and, and our giver is God. But every aspect of our life is tinged with sadness, it's tinged with finitude, with pain, with heartache. Deep down, we know all of these things. Deep down, we know that this is not how things are supposed to be. Friendship should never come to an end. People should never pass away. We know this. People should not get sick. People should not be in the hospital. Something is wrong. It's like it's cursed. Today, we are seeking to overturn this curse just as man has sought to overturn this curse from the beginning. As you trace through Genesis, it's not long before you hit chapter 11 where all of humanity is trying to build a tower to God. Why? So that they can sit on His throne ultimately in a recognition that things are cursed and they want out of it. Today, we're trying to overturn the curse through technological advancement. You hear the notions that we'll be able to live forever, ever. We're going to be able to hack the human brain with a microchip is Elon Musk's new thing. It's all going to come crashing down. It's all going to come crashing down just as the Tower of Babel came crashing down. But here and now, it's not even the biggest issue. You see, things are cursed, but the biggest problem is that man has transgressed against a holy God. 
And that we stand before a holy God guilty in our sin before His holiness in this unapproachable light. The problem is that our sin is against God, which means that the solution is not found in us, but it is only found in God. Namely, we need forgiveness. Humans, apart from God, are trying to undo the consequences of their action while never repudiating their course of action that is rebellion against God. But God, in His grace, even in the midst of this judgment where He is cursing Adam and Eve, where He is cursing the ground because of their sin, He has a word of promise. The curse is not the final word. Death is not the final word. You see, in cursing the serpent, the Lord blesses Adam and Eve with a promise. Genesis 3.15, He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. That is, the child of the woman will render a decisive blow, crushing the serpent, but the serpent will get him with a venomous bite. The promise here is that through this offspring, through the seed of the woman that is the child, the Lord promises to bring forth a warrior who is going to crush the head of the serpent and undo, overturn the curse. The Genesis narrative then carries this theme or of seed or offspring. So that this promise in Genesis 3.15 is carried further to Genesis 12 where it picks up with some man named Abraham. Look with me at Genesis 2 verses, or at Matthew 2, uh, Matthew 1 verses 2 through 6. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. So Matthew 1.1, we move from this picture of the Genesis narrative picked up to the exact same place that the Genesis narrative goes with this promise of God whereby the curse will be overturned to Abram. Now, I I hope that you have had someone in your family who has recounted to you your family history. I had a grandmother, Sarah. I have a grandmother, Sarah. And she was such a person for me. I grew up and she would tell me story after story of her ancestors, my grandfather's ancestors. Some of those stories recounted amazing things. Others of those stories recounted horrible deeds perpetrated by my very ancestors. But I can't hear a name from my genealogy without thinking of a store of the stories that I was told. And this is Matthew's purpose in recounting the genealogy of Christ. See, because all of these names or most of these names are found in the Old Testament narrative with a story attached to them. And so as as Matthew is rehearsing these names, he's counting on the fact that his Jewish readers would have been familiar with the text so that they would have been cueing each. Each of these words would have been drawing something from their memory banks of the Old Testament. And now Abraham is the major figure here. And his story begins in Genesis chapter 12. We know that Abraham's wife was named Sarah and that she was barren. The Lord called Abraham out of his father's house to go to a land that was not his own, but a land that the Lord had promised him. And the Lord had promised not only to give him a land, but that he would give him an an offspring, that he would give him someone to inherit this land. And he said that this child would come through his barren wife, Sarah. She could not have children, and both of them were advanced in years. They'd been married for a long time, had never been able to have kids. Such a birth was a miraculous event, just as it would have been today. And yet the Lord promised that through this child, kings and nations would come forth. And indeed, through this child, the whole world would be blessed. Now what is blessing, if not the opposite of cursing? And so here in this very child, we have God is going to bring about a blessing in the midst of this cursed world that through Abraham's son, this this curse, this, this fallenness would be undone and overturned. 
The child promised to Adam and Eve now narrows to the seed of Abraham as the Lord continues to work out the glorious plan of redemption. Now Abraham does have a child miraculously. His name is Isaac. Isaac then gives birth to Jacob who gives birth to twelve sons. Indeed, a whole nation. The seed of the woman, the child of, of promise, promise to overturn the curse, is being preserved from Eve through Abraham, now to the nation of Israel, until this very child should come forth. The Old Testament then narrows again as the Lord installs a king over this nation of Israel. The first king He installed, His name was Saul. Saul was appointed by God as sort of the people's candidate. The people wanted a king just like the nations. And so what did the Lord do? He gave them one. And it was a total disaster. Because what the people ultimately should have asked for is, Lord, give us Your King. Lord, install Yourself as ruler in the midst of this nation. But they again, just like their father Adam, repudiated the rule of God. They repudiated the prophet Samuel. They did not want him judging in their land. They wanted to be just like the nations. Saul's reign was horrible. But again, after that punishment comes who? David. And who was David? David was not a king like the nations. David was a man after God's own heart. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord promises David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, that is for the Lord's name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Don't miss this. The whole Old Testament narrative portrays the redemptive work of God, the plan to fix everything, the plan to make everything right, to wipe away every tear, to end all sadness, is coming from a man, from Adam and Eve, through the line of Abraham, and now we know it will be one of David's sons. It is easy to read the Old Testament and think it's all about Israel or it's all about Moses. But Israel didn't even think it was about Israel. The Old Testament is all about how God is going to overturn the curse through the son of Abraham, the son of David. The Old Testament is, is to point to the culmination of God's entire redemptive work in one human person, Jesus Christ the Lord. Matthew's message through this genealogy is, look at He's here. He's standing before you. And so he goes into David following how Christ is then the child of David. Looking at, at the second half of verse 6. And David was the father, father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. It's easy to roll over these names, but as we're rolling over these names, we're jumping hundreds of years. These, these are names on a page to us, but there is a story behind each one of these, and all of these names are in the genealogy of Christ, not by accident, but by the design of God. Now quickly here, I want to make one observation as we, as we just finished verse 11. Notice that Israel never comes out of exile in the genealogy of Matthew. He mentions the deportation. And then verse 12, he'll say, after the deportation of Babylon. But at no point does he say, when Israel returned from exile. Matthew never touches on Israel being back to the, being brought back to the land. He mentions the deportation, which was the end of Israel as a sovereign state. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians after the reign of David. You have David to Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom is split into two. Then you have here this kingly genealogy following from David through Solomon over the king who reigned over the two tribes in the south, which were Judah and the Benjaminites. So you have these two tribes being ruled by the throne of David. All of the other Israelites have rebelled, have gone their own way. 
This king then is coming through the line of David, but eventually in 586 BC, you have the destruction of both nations conclusively and all of the Israelites are deported or exiled into Babylon. This though comes as a fulfillment of what the Lord promised in Deuteronomy. He said, if you inherit the land and you obey my commandments, it will pour forth life. But if you disobey my commandments, I will send you through the nation. Israel did not have it in themselves to obey. Israel did not have it in themselves to overturn the curse. They themselves, just like their father Adam, became a curse. This nation who was to to bring blessings to the nation couldn't do it. It was all dependent upon the Lord. And so Jerusalem is destroyed. The Babylonians disperse the Jews throughout their nation. Israel did, did eventually return to the land, but they never brought about the same sort of national supremacy that they had before. They had to rebuild the temple, but they were ruled ultimately by the Babylonians, who were conquered by the Persians, who were conquered by the, the Greeks, which that Alexander's nation fractured into four nations. So they were ruled by the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, which were then eventually conquered by the Romans. And that's where we're at today, is Matthew is writing as a Roman tax collector. So he is a Jew who is a man that collects t- uh, the money for the Roman government. That, that is, is where we're at today. Still, Israel is under subjugation. So let's read 12 through 16. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Akim. And Akim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Methan. And Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This is what it's all pointing to. This is what it's all coming to. All of these promises that Israel has hoped in and waited for and expected and held on to even as they are being subjugated by their own kings and subjugated by other nations, even as they as a nation are being utterly destroyed, they're hanging tight to the promise that a king is coming. When we hit Matthew, God has been silent for 400 years. He has not spoken in the nation of Israel. The glory cloud has not descended upon the new temple. And yet the people are clinging to this hope, to this promise, that the Lord said He will overturn the curse, and that is what we are looking for. At this point, things look bleak for the Jews. God had judged them for their lack of faithfulness, their their lack of faithfulness to the covenant. He punished them using the Babylonians to destroy them. After about 70 years, he brought them back to the nation, but nothing was ever the same. It was hopeless. It seemed bleak. Around the time of Christ, you would not have expected the Messiah to come. But it is at that very time that the Lord sends forth the promised seed. It is at that point that the Lord said, here is my decisive answer to the curse as He sends forth His Son born of a virgin. With the birth of the Christ, with the birth of the Anointed One, the Chosen One, the Promised One through whom the curse would be overturned and the whole world would be blessed. And so it continues. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So I want to narrow first quickly on three aspects of the genealogy. First, this genealogy is different from Luke's. We already mentioned that Luke starts with uh, Adam, whereas Matthew starts with Abraham. But you see the connection there. And you see what Matthew is ultimately trying to do. Matthew's point in portraying the genealogy is to say, here are the promises of God and here is how Jesus Christ is their fulfillment and the culmination of all of them. The other differences in Matthew and Luke's genealogy is that this genealogy is primarily through church history tied to Joseph. Whereas Luke's genealogy is primarily tied to Mary. So on the one hand, with Joseph, you have the genealogy of kingly succession. 
On the other hand, you have the genealogy, the natural connection of Judah, uh, the Judah through whom the king would come to the Christ. Both connect Jesus Christ to David as the rightful heir to the throne, but one is through Jesus and or Joseph, one is through Mary. And now, if you're like me, the first thing you think is, well, Jesus was not Joseph's actual son. But here, I just want to highlight that we have a tangential argument for the glory of adoption. You see, sonship, being a parent, is not fundamentally an issue of natural birth. No, being a parent is most fundamentally a covenantal relationship. That as the parent, you set your love and affection upon a particular child. It's not a matter of passing on your DNA, but it is a matter of setting your love and your faithfulness upon a child and declaring that this is your child. It is a matter of parenting. Often this happens naturally. But the natural relationship is not the most fundamental. Rather, the covenantal commitment and the declaration that this is my beloved son is most fundamental. Real sons, real daughters come into families in two ways. Naturally or through adoption. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. But because Joseph adopted Jesus into his family, Joseph's genealogy was Jesus' genealogy. Joseph's heritage was Jesus' heritage. Jesus was a real son of Joseph. And in this way, we, brothers and sisters, are adopted into God's family. We are real sons and daughters of the living God. We are not half-siblings. We are not partial children. But when God, through our big brother Jesus Christ, sets His love and affection upon us, we become real members of His family. Jesus' inheritance is our inheritance. Jesus' family righteousness is our righteousness. It is all accredited to us and we are made like Him. Through Jesus, brothers and sisters, God is our real Father. Secondly, this genealogy does not include every name, but is meant to be a memorable list. This is something you'll hear skeptics raise. Well, Matthew's genealogy is a mess. Well, okay, but the point of this is not modern scientific precision, the point of this is to say, how do we get from David to Jesus? Luke, I think, gives us a bit more of modern scientific precision in that sense. But again, the point here is not exactitude. And you can trace these things all the way back, but yes, you may skip a few generations. So for instance, you see in verse 5, Rahab. What's the next name? Boaz. The entire book of Judges... Most of Joshua and all of Judges stand between Rahab and Boaz. So yes, we are skipping a handful of generations. But that does not mean that Boaz is not the offspring of Rahab. There is a a genealogical connection. Finally, notice that the genealogy of Christ is brutally honest in highlighting the negative aspects of Christ's genealogy. Right out of the gate, Matthew hits Judah and Tamar. This is recounted in Genesis 38. Tamar was married to Judah's oldest son, Ur, who died. And as was the custom, Judah gave Tamar to Ur's brother, Onan. But Onan refused to bring up offspring. And then Judah would not keep up, keep his word. And so Tamar seduced her father-in-law and through him had children. Matthew could have just highlighted Judah to Perez and moved on, but he specifically draws attention to Tamar. Next, he hits Rahab in verse 5. She was not a Jew, but she was from Jericho. And not only that, Rahab was a prostitute. She was a scandalous woman. Again, Matthew could have jumped right over these things. Then he hits David and Bathsheba in verse 6. But what does he call Bathsheba? The wife of Uriah. So he intentionally highlights what David did to Bathsheba in that he took her while she was still married to Uriah, and then he had Uriah put to death after he got Bathsheba pregnant and Uriah refused to sleep with his wife. Matthew is is not shying away from these aspects. And now I'm not going to go into every detail about the kings, but needless to say, that also is a mixed bag. Christ's genealogical tree includes some horrendous things. And then we include the, the notion of deportation. Now all of this, Matthew's genealogy was not written as a, a, a blank slated propaganda piece. Matthew was highlighting that Jesus Christ, the fulfillment and culmination of all the promises of God, is Himself brought about by grace. 
If Christ depended, if, if God's works and God's acts depended upon having a perfect family tree, it never would have been brought to pass. God's act of promise and fulfillment is an act of sheer grace, an act of sheer mercy, an act of sheer love. And so this is a, a brief exposition of this text. We could go into a lot more details about the particularities of each person. But from this now, I want to draw three doctrinal points. And these are, are three that Matthew hits. We could talk all day about this passage. But first, the nature of God's promises. From the very first, God's promises are grounded in His love and grace. Before the foundation of the world, God existed in triune fellowship and love. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit united in perfect, loving, joy-filled, harmonious fellowship. God did not create because He was lonely. God did not create to fulfill a lack in Himself. Our God lacks nothing. It is from His abundance that He created. From His abundance of love and goodness, He, he created creatures to share and partake in that glory. When Adam rejected God's love and fellowship, God would have been perfectly just to wipe the slate clean and either start over or just remain in perfect intra-Trinitarian fellowship. But He doesn't. He doesn't do that. He acts graciously on the part of humanity. And even in the midst of His judgment, we see God's love and kindness shine through. Indeed, these things cannot be separated. Even as God exercises His justice in punishing sin, He loves His image in the humans that He has created. And from His love and mercy, not from our goodness, not from our beauty, but from God's love and mercy and grace, He promises to do good to those who want nothing to do with Him. The foundation of God's promises is not humanity's worthiness or beauty. The foundation is God Himself. In love at the cost of His beloved Son, God set forth the plan of redeeming man and restoring him to fellowship. And that's, that's what God's promises are grounded in. Again, they do not depend upon us for their fulfillment. God does not produce or promise Adam and Eve a redeemer based on their own activity or their own righteousness or their own beauty. Well, maybe it does depend on one activity. But so often we jump then from naturalism. That the, the union of man and woman immediately brings forth children. Conception and childbirth are glorious gifts. They are miraculous. They should never be taken for granted. Nor should they be seen as just the natural course of things. Abraham and Sarah are proof of that. If you have children, it is not because of natural processes, but it is because of the Lord's good gifts. Israel did not continue on by their own strength, but because God ordained that they would do so, that they would be a nation, that they would be the nation from whom Christ would come. The anointed Messiah, the one who would take away the sins of the world. Christians, you need to know this morning that the promise of salvation, it is not held out to you based on your good works from an indifferent deity. God is not ambivalent to our situation. God really loves us. God really loves you. The, the very assumption of the promise is that you are a sinner in need of redemption and that God loves you so that He sent His only Son so that He might be a propitiation for your sins. The promise of salvation begins with the knowledge that we need grace. And it also begins with the knowledge that God Himself extends that grace. Matthew's genealogy shows us the nature of God's promise. Second, Matthew's genealogy shows us the precision of God's providence. God is working all things, all things together according to His will. That's both in the big picture and the small picture. Big picture first. So again, think about over the course of this genealogy, how many nations have risen and fallen just in the, the 17 verses that Matthew recounts. You have Egypt, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Seleucids, the Romans. And that's not even counting the ones that we don't know about, which there are many, many, many. Each of these nations had their own gods. Each of these nations had their own political leaders. They had their own agendas. They had their own national crises, their own wars, their own plans, their own purposes. Each of these nations thought they were the greatest thing since sliced bread. And yet God's focus was on one family, which grew into a small nation, which was overthrown and brought back and restored. And now God is reestablishing His kingdom. 
Think about what went into Israel surviving as a national entity. Even though they would have been deemed insignificant by all of the major powers of their day. It is so easy for us to focus on national realities and and the importance of civilization as we know it. But this genealogy screams for us that those things that the world deems most significant are all serving the purpose of God. And that purpose of God is to bring forth the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. Each and every nation as it exists now served the bringing forth of an obscure man from an obscure barn in in an obscure town in a subjugated nation. There is nothing in the birth of Christ that the world would call significant. Sure, Herod knew about it, but Herod only knew about it because a couple of stargazers showed up on his doorstep. Do you think that the rulers in Rome cared at all about what was happening in Israel in general, let alone in Bethlehem at this particular time? Nope. They they would have never given two thoughts about the birthplace of Christ. And yet, the very reality that would overturn the course of the entire world is taking place. That was the birthplace of the One through whom the whole world will find its ultimate significance and its ultimate satisfaction. That was the birthplace of the One who is currently seated at the right hand of the Father and is ruling over the nations with a rod of iron. God is working all things together for His purposes, namely the glory of His Son at the grand scale, but also at the micro level. So as we think about these genealogies, name after name after name, and we know some of them, but we don't know many of them. Think about the individual stories that populate the genealogy. Think about the days and the years. Think about the family meals. Think about all of the things that would have been taking place in this genealogy that we just have no knowledge of. But all of these things under the superintendence and the slow working of our great God and Father to bring about the reconciliation of all things in His Son, Jesus Christ. Just from a a grand scale, Boaz and Ruth is one example. What was required for Boaz to meet Ruth? Naomi, her husband, had to go to Moab, which was in contravention of the will of the Lord. Naomi had to have sons. Those, one of those sons had to meet Ruth. Then he had to marry Ruth. All the men then had to die. Ruth then had to have had some sort of emotional attachment to her mother, which then would have re- resulted in Ruth identifying as an Israelite and coming back to Israel. Then, Ruth had to glean from a particular field at a particular time. Ruth had to meet a particular field gleaner who didn't just abuse her, but who reported her to the head then the head of that whole thing just happens to be the one man who can redeem Ruth. That's one name in the genealogy. Think about all of the other names. Think about the the superintendence of God. Again, in, in those days that would have seemed so obscure, in those days that would have seemed so normal, so mundane, and yet God is working His purposes out. Think particularly of those in exile. How horrible would that have been to know that you had been part of a glorious nation that had been utterly wrecked by another nation that you were dispersed across the world, ripped from your home, separated from your family, subjugated by another nation. And yet all of it, all of it is under the superintendence of the sovereignty of our great God. And thirdly, Matthew's genealogy demonstrates Christ's preeminence. So as we see God superintending all of these events, what's it all about? It's about bringing forth Jesus Christ. As I have enumerated that the world powers that had risen and fallen in the years of God's providence, working through sinful people, living normal lives, God's agenda through all of it was to demonstrate the preeminence of the glory of His Son. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Indeed, all of human history centers on this one man making redemption for the sins of His people. There is nothing more important, there is nothing more, ins- more significant in all of human history than this. God demonstrates that through Matthew's genealogy, and God continues to demonstrate that still, as Satan works via governments to try and crush the church. And yet, in those areas where the church is most decimated, think communist China, think communist Russia, think the, the provinces where the Hindus right now are slaughtering our brothers and sisters in India. And they're baptizing. 
Because the Lord will establish His church against the gates of hell. As this Word is proclaimed, it supernaturally works in the hearts and lives of those people who hear it. And God is continuing to call to Himself His people from the four corners of the world. That is the most significant thing happening right now. And if you want to ground your life in significance, give it to that. Give it to that. Even as it seems now that things are bleak and hopeless in the midst of a global pandemic, the bride of Christ continues to flourish. The Lord continues to save His people through the preaching of the Gospel. The Lord continues to produce fruit in us as we continue to hear and seek to live the Word. Christ's preeminent cannot be squashed. He is the first. He is the last. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. He is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And one day He will return riding on a white horse with eyes like a flame of fire and with a crown of many diadems upon His head. And He will be clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And He will be followed by all the hosts of heaven. We await that glorious day. And there is nothing that we can contemplate, nothing that we can think of more than one day every knee will bow. One day, every knee will recognize the preeminence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Even as they have tried to squash it and stamp it out all along the way. And so as I conclude, I just want to make three brief points of application. First, Jesus Christ is preeminent in the plan of God. Is He preeminent in your life? If I can say it this way, God's deepest heart is to make much of His Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, all of human history redounds to His glory. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Why did God create the cosmos? To the praise of His glory. Why did God create men and women, you and me? To the praise of His glory. Christians, why do you exist? Why do you exist as Christians? Why are you here on earth at this particular time, in this particular place, in this particular country? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It is not as though Jesus was born, lived a perfect life. We don't just think about Christmas as something that happened 2,000 years ago. That happened, now we get to move on to bigger and better things. No. God is still working out His plan to reconcile all things to Himself, whether on heaven or, or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. The Christian life then is the continual pursuit to make much of Christ, to, to make the glory of Christ the preeminent thing in our thinking, in our speaking, in our loving, and in our acting. Paul was in anguish over the Galatians. I don't think you've gotten there yet. Until Christ was formed in them. When does that happen? When we die and are glorified in new bodies. We need to labor that Christ be formed in us and that Christ be formed in one another. Romans 8.29 For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. The point of our calling is to be conformed into the image of our, our brother Jesus Christ. For anything that takes the place of Christ's preeminence is idolatry. But more than that, when anything in our lives takes the place of Christ's preeminence, brothers and sisters, we are being robbed of joy and satisfaction. We are being robbed of fellowship with God. We were created to be in loving fellowship with our triune Creator, and that is what Christ died to accomplish, namely, our forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus Christ is the center of God's plan and the center of God's glory, but is He the center of your marriage? Is He the center of the last interaction you had with your children? Is He the center of the last interaction that you had with your co-workers? When you consider your own desires, your own hopes, your own goals, do they magnify the preeminence of Christ? Or do they magnify the desire for profit, the desire for a big house, the desire for nice things? When you think again about the last argument that you had with someone, was it over the preeminence of Christ? The preeminence of Christ is for our good. And just as Jesus was the fulfillment and culmination of all the promises of God, so too He must be the fulfillment and culmination of all that we think about the good life. Secondly, 
Even when it seems that God is silent, He is working in the mundane and the obscure. As we walk through the genealogy, again, the last 400 years was silence from the Almighty. It is easy to think about that time frame and bare numbers, but that time frame is about the same amount of time that has passed from the pilgrims landing on Plymouth Rock till now. That's a long time. Think about how many generations lived during that time period in hope of beholding the Messiah and think about how many of them died without ever seeing that hope fulfilled. It may have seemed to the Jews that the Lord had abandoned them. It may have seemed that His promises were void and null. And it can feel that way for us sometimes too, can it? As we labor in prayer for a particular thing, as we wait upon the Lord, as we see sin in our lives that we continue to try and put to death as it continues to seem to crop back up, and you wonder, is the Lord really at work? We watch as the world modernizes at lightning speed, and we seem backwards and bigoted because we're committed to faithfulness to a book that's 2,000 years old. But Christian, take hope. God is not silent. God is not sleeping on the job. God is still working out His plans and we must continue to wait for Him and hope in Him. We must continue to look for His activity. Our days seem long as they stretch into weeks and months and years. And life can roll into mundane drudgery day after day after day. Our lives can feel obscure as generations pass and you think, will anyone even know my name 200 years from now? And the answer is, probably not. But the question is, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Because if your name is in the mind of our Lord and Savior, it will never be forgotten. It will never be abandoned. The only way for us to have true significance is that we connect ourselves to He whom God deems as most significant, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, take hope that your name is known by God. Take hope that you will never be cast out. You will never be treated as a slave or subjugated by an angry father, but that our Father in Heaven loves you in such a way that He sent His Son to die for your sins so that you can be real sons and daughters. If your name is known by the One who has loved you and given His name up as a sacrifice for your sins, nothing can rip you out of His grips. Not even the mundane day-to-day of our obscure lives the knowledge of God's love for us, the knowledge of what God has accomplished on our behalf, and brothers and sisters, the knowledge of the utopia that awaits. Not the utopia that we can make here and now, but the utopia that Jesus Christ will bring with Him when He returns on a cloud. That ought to fill our hearts with joy. We must press on. And we must urge one another to press on as we believe that God is present and that God's rewarding those who seek Him. And finally, take courage. God's plans cannot be thwarted. People will often talk about how the world hates Christians and they immediately jump to, well, all these Christians are jerks and hypocrites, therefore the world hates them. That might be true in some cases, but fundamentally the world hates the Word of God. Jesus said, Blessed are you when you others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on My account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The world hates the Word of God. The world hates the fact that God says that being drunk or being out of your right mind is a sin. The world hates the fact that the Bible says that there are two genders. The world hates the fact that the Bible calls homosexuality and pornography and fornication, indeed lust, a sin. The world hates the fact that the Bible places a higher premium on whether or not you are known by God than whatever your bank account is or whatever class you were born into. The world hates the fact that Jesus' kingdom is not of this earth, but it forces us to contemplate utopia in the future because humanity is so utterly wretched and wrecked that there's no possible way we can bring it about in our own midst. The world does not like the Word of God. But Christian, God's call is for you to submit to it at every single point. We ought not be jerks. We ought not be nasty people. May our commitment to the convictions that the Lord has given us be the stench. But brothers and sisters, take heart that the Lord's purposes will not be thwarted. 
This Word has triumphed over culture since the beginning of time, and this Word will continue to triumph as the Lord builds His church in the ruins of this nation, in the ruins of communist China, in the ruins of Russia. All of these nations will pass away, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. As the world rages, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is sitting in the clouds right now thrashing the nations with a rod of iron. He is establishing His kingdom. He is establishing His new creation. But brothers and sisters, let us not think about that again in terms of of physical, tangible realities. When you have love for someone, that there is no reason that you should have love for them. When you have joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, when you are able to fight anxiety or able to fight lust or greed, when you are able to set your life on the trajectory that the Word of God has for you, that is the new creation being worked out in our midst. When we as the body of Christ are united in loving fellowship, that's not normal. That's not normal. That people from different families, from different ethnicities, from different areas of the world can be united as brothers and sisters in Christ. That we can have peace, that we can be reconciled to one another, not because of reparations, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. When that is a reality, that is the new creation. And that ultimately is what we're looking forward to. We're not looking forward to streets of gold or mansions on a cloud. We are looking forward to fellowship with the triune God. And that's where our hope is hidden. It's hidden in Him. He is sitting at the right hand of our Father. And nothing can steal us from His grip. So brothers and sisters, take courage that as we seek to live our lives in accordance with the will of God, in a stumbling, failing way, but as we seek to do that, His plans and purposes will not be thwarted. And we have confidence that He is acting on our behalf. But if you are with us this morning and you don't know this hope, be warned. You will face the Lord. And on that day, you will not be able to appeal to anything apart from the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. Because you are not clever enough, you are not smart enough, you are not well enough off to twist the arm of the Lord God Almighty. The only way that we can be brought into His presence is through His forgiving act and and our restoration and reconciliation to Him. And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and culmination of all the promises of God. Receive Him by faith. Meditate on Him. Exalt and, and glory in His preeminence and seek to make His preeminence the thing that's preeminent in your own lives. Please pray with me. Our gracious Lord, we...